I'm Aysan and welcome to International League Matters. We're going to try and fill this season's international breaks with more regular podcasts like this one where we actually talk about the international fixtures and City players who are away on international duty and generally try and fill the tedium of international breaks by talking about the tedium that is international football. Joining me today, I've got two very big swinging hitters, Mr. Howard Hockin and Mr. Stephen Tudor. I've gone with two names today. Morning, Howard. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Excellent. Steve, how are you? I'm all good, thanks. Excellent. Do you want to explain to the listeners what what you're having delivered this morning? I'm having my wedding shoes delivered, so I may have to dash and then come back within a space of about 20 seconds. (laughs) Excellent. Not a problem for us. I'm sure it won't be a problem for the listeners. Um, Howard, you got any deliveries that we need to know about? (laughs) Uh, No, but I forget what I order, so... (laughs) Most of it comes from China, so it could turn up at any point in the next two months. Oh, excellent, excellent. I really need to I get really want to know what that is now. Yeah, me I too. really want to know. <laughs> what, from China? Yeah. Well, uh, one city... No, I can't say a city. <laughs> definitely not do that. Uh, it's actually a salt and pepper shaker kind of thing. <laughs> could be more boring, to be honest. Excellent. No, no, that was better than I hoped. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Right, lads, um, before we get into international things, I've got an opening question. And since the show is called International League Matters, the opening question can be from the Premier League. And this is the question. Pellegrini, is he under pressure or is he correct when he says that the mess he inherited will take time to fix? Um, Steve, I'll start with you. There's two ways of looking at this. And you may gauge from how I kind of phrase both ways that I'm kind of fall down on the second one, which would be correct. But it doesn't mean that the first way of looking at it is not without merit also. First way of looking at it is when in the Premier League these days, you can't take a chance. You can't give a, a manager kind of sufficient breathing space to just see if it all pans out eventually. Those days, alas, are gone. Um, there's too much at stake now. And if this situation at West Ham, which is not the greatest of situations, continues, then you could get to Christmas or January and suddenly you're looking at bringing in a firefighter and, and it's a whole you know cyclical uh, situation occurring all over again, bringing back Allardyce or someone like that. So there is merit if a situation isn't working out at West Ham under Pellegrini for the West Ham board to think, right, let's just you know nip this in the bud very early on, in a similar fashion to how Crystal Palace did last year with De Boer, uh, bringing in another manager who has essentially then nine-tenths of a season to kind of change things around. Second way of looking at it is by looking at the individual circumstance. And in this instance, you've got a club which is shambolically run, absolutely shambolically run. There's no infrastructure there in terms of their recruitment. It's non-existent. Essentially, you have a situation where you have three or four agents who come to David Sullivan and recommend a player. Uh, He'll seek other advice from elsewhere and then sign that player. And you just basically collect uh, a group of individual players who have no kind of identity with uh, no kind of um, relationship, sorry, with whatever manager is in charge at the time. Pellegrini is to come in and take charge of two previous managers, groups of players who were bought for them anyway, so they weren't even related to those managers. Um, And it was a struggling football club, and it takes time to turn all that round. First thing Pellegrini did was install his own director of football, so now he's got 
a, a person he trusts to go out and get the players that he wants. They went out and he got the players that he wanted. Uh, he then tried to implement uh, a playing style that you know suited, he believed, his way and the players' way. To sack him after four games or five games is ridiculous. Uh, in this particular instance, it would be ridiculous to let Pellegrini go at such an early juncture. Okay. Um, Howard, what's, what's your take? Do you, do you think he's maybe under a little bit more pressure than, than Steve acknowledges? Uh, well, I think he's yeah, pretty much covered it all. Uh, yeah, he is under pressure because, as he said, as Steve said right at the beginning, this is the Premier League and you don't get any time. Uh, so, but, you know, in the real world, he should be given time. You can't tell how good Pellegrini's going to do the job after four games just because it doesn't go well. I mean, within a year, he could, you know, he could have turned everything around. He could be playing the best footballing years, but... Most managers don't get that much time. And the problem is, if you look at the fixture list, you know, when when will he turn it around and how long will he be given? As as mentioned by State, yeah, you know, Palace last year and Everton in the past. Managers don't get the time. They're away they're away to Everton next Premier League. Then they've got Chelsea. And then they've got United. And then they've got soon after that Spurs and they're away to Leicester. And if you you know, they're nine games in without a win, then Obviously, the owners and it's the owners are going to be panicking, and he won't get any longer than that. So he is up against the clock here. He has to pull a couple of results out because you just don't get the time. Now, obviously, we know Pellegrini. And there's the other side of it that is this the sort of man that will, you know, bring the you know fire this team up and get him kicking, screaming back into form. And you're not sure. <laughs> that you know, from the last two years of his reign, you're not sure that he's the man to do that. Mm. So, but you know, it's already been mentioned. If West, you know, if they get rid of him, it's going to cost them another fifteen million pounds, and they're just digging. They just keep digging holes. And you look at the like the Everton summer recruitment of last year. You know, oh, they've made some signings here, but they've not made signings to fill the problem areas in the pitch, like defensive midfield or. You know, this should have started with the defence, to be honest. Make them a a tough team to break down. Uh, but again, it's still a collection of individuals at this stage. How long will he get? Probably no more than five or six more games. He has to pick one or two wins out of that, out of a tough fixture list. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think West Ham have put themselves in uh, a complicated situation because they've they allowed him to bring in the director of football that he worked with at Malaga, and then they allowed the two of them together to to control the recruitment in the summer. I think because of that, um, and also because of the problems that you've alluded to in the past, where you know they've kind of gone through uh, two managers, the recruitment has been awful and all over the shop and completely without any direction. Um, whether or not. Pellegrini's direction long-term is the right direction for West Ham. The fact is, at least it is a direction. Um, He knows what he wants to do. If it's not happening on the pitch, it's not happening on the pitch because he's not been there very long and because of the, you know, ultimately... You like, for example, you make a fair point about the defensive midfield and saying that, well, you know, they need more, they need more legs in midfield. Sure, but he, he had to go and buy centre halves as well, and he had to go and buy forwards as well because there was, 
you know, holes all over that squad because of the dross that was there. Um, I guess I sound a little bit like a Pellegrini fanboy, which I am. So <laughs> I was always going to defend him. It's kind of why I asked the question. Um, I just think that, I think now is not the time to panic. And the main reason for that, even if I put my Pellegrini bias aside, is that there's a lot of dross in the bottom third of the Premier League. And, you know, three points separate the bottom six. And I can imagine, you know, Cardiff, Huddersfield, Newcastle, Burnley. How many points are they picking up this season? Palace will be okay, but those those ones that I've just mentioned, I don't know how many points they're picking up this season. And I think that, you know, West Ham, I think, will get it together. And by, I think West Ham need to start scoring goals and multiple goals. And I think that they will do with the attacking players that they've got. Um, and I think that that is what will see them out of trouble. I also think that, unless I'm mistaken, I think they have a very, very nice December so they have a bunch of fixtures that in theory can catapult them up the table, which will kind of mitigate the complicated start that they've had. So, yeah, I mean, I, I do, I think he is under pressure because that's just the nature of the league and the nature of, of the media in not just in England, but in any country when it comes to football managers, but especially in England. Um, and on top of that, Pellegrini's foreign and, you know, he, he's got a history of not, you know, he didn't have a great relationship with the British press when he was city manager. So for that reason, there's not going to be the kind of patience or sympathy that there would be for Moyes or for Allardyce or for one of those guys. Um, but yeah, I still, I think he'll turn it around, but yeah, uh, I guess time. The players on the 24th of November, uh, in De- December, they have no top six teams to play. So yeah, there you go. I think that yeah. they. Uh, but I do think I think also that they. I, I do think they'll pick up points in the next in the next five or six games. I I wonder whether you know. Look, they were they were excellent against uh, against Arsenal, and they could have won that game, or at least they could have put themselves in a position where. They were on course to win that game. Um, they were unlucky with some of their finishing, and I think that that will improve. And if that finishing improves, the chances that they created, they'll score goals. I mean, Howard said that um, you know there was a problem in defensive midfield, uh, and that wasn't addressed. And you said, Asan, that you know at least under Pellegrini there is a direction. Both those things I completely agree with. And I said that you know Pellegrini needs time to implement his kind of style of football. You put those three things together, and you've got Jack Wiltshire. Now, whether you agree with whether you know whether you rate Jack Wiltshire or not is irrelevant because Pellegrini does, and he's come out on record and saying that he sees him as a Perlo figure in his midfield, someone who sits deep and kind of you know controls things from from deeper areas. So those three things that we've said kind of combine there. We, you you have to give you know, Jack Wiltshire and West Ham and Pellegrini time. Absolutely. See if that works. Because otherwise, what's the point? Absolutely. What is the point in doing it? Absolutely. You know? you know, one of the things I found strange is um, across the board, whether you listen to podcasts or you, you read newspapers, um, the mainstream media are absolutely convinced that Jack Wilshire is not a Pellegrini signing and Pellegrini would never sign Jack Wilshire. Mm. And I'm just a bit baffled by that because I'm like, well, you know, okay, we have our impression of Jack Wilshire because of his injury record. And maybe as a footballer, he's not developed in the way that we would have liked him to develop. 
But let's not kid ourselves. Two years ago, three years ago, when Guardiola came in, people were talking about Guardiola's got his eye on Jack Wilshire because Jack Wilshire did run a game at the new Camp for, for, for Arsenal against Barcelona, yeah. against Guardiola. And I think that the fact is that from the outside, maybe outside of the English bubble, bubble Jack Wilshire will be known as the technically very gifted midfielder who played at Arsenal, who maybe did, has had injury issues and didn't develop in the way that he would have, they would have liked him to develop. That's absolutely a Pellegrini player. You know, you're not talking yeah. about Mark Noble is absolutely not a Pellegrini player. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? He's, he, the, yeah. but the difference between those two in terms of quality and technique is, is actually very, very, very large. And I think that a lot of the British media inadvertently do Wilshire a proper disservice by kind of lumping the two in together and going like, well, you know, Wilshire and Noble, they're absolutely not Pellegrini players. Noble is absolutely not a Pellegrini player. Jack Wilshire, I could make the argument, is a Pellegrini player. And if he is on record as saying that he, he sees him like Perlo, well, if he's got the right holding midfielder next to him, if he's got the right protection in front of him in terms of the entire team understanding that system because look it is it is a version of 442 and it is going to require them to be very compact and it is going to require them to work very hard and be very intelligent with with their movement and their positioning but if they do do it right Pellegrini showed it forget about City forget about Real Madrid at Villarreal and at Malaga he showed that he can get smaller teams to overperform whilst playing attacking football that's effective so yeah, I mean it's 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 one that I I I hope come January February next year everybody kind of goes yeah that was a bit harsh to judge Pellegrini so quickly yeah. but I acknowledge the fact that it could go absolutely tips up and you it's know. good to have him back in the Premier League and uh, the fifteen million pound payoff he command if sacked could be the thing that actually saves him because yes obviously. Uh, the likes of Brady and Gold don't want to be paying that, so uh, no, and they yeah, don't. He may get a bit more time because of that. Yeah, and I don't think they're going to want to be seen to. You know, I, 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 it would be what 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 Palace did with. Mm, they got a lot of criticism for that. Yeah, the 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 way that in which they handled that was was heavily criticised. And frankly, if you look at Palace this season, it's like. I mean, I understand the, the, I guess we're disappearing down a rabbit hole. It's meant to be an international podcast, but it's an interesting conversation. I, I think that, you know, you have this thing where clubs just want to survive in the Premier League. And occasionally a club like Palace will go, well, we want to do a bit more than survive. We want to try and add something else, but then bottle it at the first yeah, sign that's what we that, did. that that thing may not work or may not come to fruition. But I think that you've got to be, if you want to take that decision as an owner, you've simply got to be braver because, I mean, yes, okay, relegation would be catastrophic for most Premier League clubs. But at the same time, four games in, six games in, even 10 games in, take a look at the league table as a whole, take a look at who's around you, take a look at how other teams are performing, you know, the Huddersfields of this world, the Burnleys of this world, you feel like with them at a certain moment, they're going to go. 
because they simply don't have the investment in finance, in quality in the squad, all of that stuff to sustain Premier League football year in, year out. A side like West Ham, even a side like Palace last season with the players that they had in the squad, you felt like it could turn a corner with whoever the coach was and you could get yourself out of trouble. Now, I don't know what happened in the dressing room there. Maybe the board just wasn't the right guy and he didn't connect with the players, but you'd think with Pellegrini, just with the pedigree that he's got and the fact that he's brought in some exciting attacking players, that he'll have the backing of the dressing room. So, you know, I think it is worth the uh, I think it is worth the risk for West Ham and I, I do think they'll be they'll be okay for it. But even with Pal- the Palace one, did my head in last year. Mm. I mean, absolutely. I mean, they lost the you know he lost the players, no doubt about that. There was basically a dressing room revolt, yeah. and they were going to the board. Um, but the board should have stood firm and said, no, you know, buckle down or, or ship out. It's you lot who are going to go before the manager. This is what we've now kind of invested in. This is the future we mm. want to undertake. Uh, and he, you, you summed it up perfectly. They bottled it, mm. uh, and what they got yeah. instead was basically an average manager in Roy Hodgson who did an Allen Ball with Matt Letizia and, and King Lansky by basically saying, right, everyone pass the Zaha as much as you can. Yeah. And they got out of trouble by playing just standard, straightforward football and banking on uh, A, Zaha's quality and B, the fact that their players are slightly better than, you know, four or five other teams' players. He's come out. I think, said- I think Palace is linked... Sorry for putting it... I think Palace is linked to the, the debate we had over whether Emery should be asking Czech to pass out from goal because mm. basically what did for De Boer was asking players used to just hitting it down the channel to Zaha or someone. Yeah. So they wanted possession football. They wanted to yeah. be like Spurs or City. He wanted to dominate the ball with players who weren't capable of doing that. So is it De Boer's fault for not adapting whilst he got the players in or the players' fault? I just don't uh, think... Though I do think also what did for him is not scoring a single goal in the five games. Yeah, definitely. So. But I do think that you can't... I, I mean, I'm not... Obviously, I'm not a business genius like the owner of a Premier League club because I've not got the hundreds of millions that you require to own a Premier League club. But I would like to think that if you get yourself to that position where you can own a Premier League club, it's because you've got something about you. You know, you've got a bit of foresight Mm. and a bit of intelligence. And I wonder how anybody with foresight and intelligence can expect to flip a playing style from one Mm. to the other in a, in a single preseason and in four league games when you're also introducing new players and you've also I mean it's just it's to me that just seems really unrealistic whether it's Pellegrini or it's uh, De Boer or it's Guardiola or Klopp or Mourinho whoever the manager is I mean look at the look at the teething problems that that Guardiola had I mean granted it's not uh, it wasn't relegation fears but quite frankly had we not finished in the top four in his first season that would have been the Manchester City equivalent in this era of relegation not getting Champions League football would have been an absolute catastrophe for Guardiola and it took to the last game of the season to to cement that but we reaped the dividends of that first season in the second season Now, I get the idea that, you know, again, you can't have relegation that, you know, that that's that's too big a a risk. But at the same time, you've got to give a new manager if you want him to bring a new style in. You've got to give him a bit more time. Well, I mean, last word on on Palace for me, but when you saw them against City, 
Uh, it was at end of December, around New Year, wasn't it? Uh, and they got nil-nil at their place. Um, okay, a great, great result for them. And we dug in and all the rest of it. They were filthy that day. Absolutely resorted to filthiness to stop Guardiola's City. Now, I'm not saying De Boer would have kind of, you know, eventually turned things around and they would have played glorious football, but that's what they were striving for. So within the space of kind of five months, they had this vision with this kind of European coach and he said, this is what we're going to do now. We're going to aspire to play beautiful football and play a football that our fans can enjoy and be proud of. Five months later, under Roy Hodgson, the most archaic kind of English coach around, um, they're, they're fouling City players left, right and centre and celebrating a nil-nil draw. That's, you just said there about reaping your rewards. You also kind of, you know, reap your, um, for what you've put in. Absolutely, you reap what you've uh, Yeah, for what you've invested either way, you know, but that's, that's uh, rewards for that. It's, you know, serves them right is what I'm saying. Yeah, absolutely. Right, Howard, I've got a question for you. Uh, I, I was under the naive assumption that um, this these international fixtures are friendlies and you inform me that these are not friendlies, that this is... The- <laughs> UEFA <laughs> Nations League. I didn't, yeah. I, I'd never heard that phrase. I, I am so jealous of you, mate. I've had to write four articles on it already in the past couple of weeks. Not, oh, not. Looks like, looks like we've got it. We have got it. No, 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 no. I still don't understand it. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, Howard, if you could, yeah. could you sum up maybe in two or three minutes what the UEFA Nations League is? <laughs> Uh, yes, I I'm actually not that against it. <laughs> it's anything something UEFA does. Uh, it's my default setting. It's a disgrace. Let's be honest. It's probably done with television viewings and money and advertising oh God, yeah. in mind because you know whatever they say, that's the end result. If you have bigger games in friendly, if what were friendly breaks, then uh, obviously more money, more advertising. Now, of course. There are still friendlies, by the way, because what is basically what has happened is I think there's 55 European nations. This was mentioned October 2017. Okay, new format. I imagine everyone ignored the press release because I don't. I knew nothing about it either, uh, and they've been split up according to our you know the world rankings uh, into four groups A, B, C, and D. Mm-hmm. But within every A, B, C, or D, there's about four groups within. The, the, the level. <laughs> See, already. So, the, yeah, already so, so Group A has the top 12, Group B has rankings 13 to 24 and so on. And then so in Group A, the top 12 split into four groups of three teams and they play each other home and away, so it's four games. Interesting. Yeah, so, so we're in the you top play, you, So you, play, play, you yeah. play teams on a, you know, a a similar level of you supposedly because their ranking is is very similar. So uh, in city uh, in city in uh, England's group we've got Spain and Croatia. We play Spain and Croatia home and away. Whoever's top goes into so the, t- the four teams at top the four groups in group in level A go through to finals next June. Uh, so semi finals and whoever wins that wins the Nations League. And you get if a you win. Oh, yeah. well, you, you must get, get a trophy, trophy yeah. yeah. If, you win, if, if you win that. level B, uh, if, if, you're in, if you're in the B level and you win that, you get promotion and so on with C and D. And I think it leaves, at the end of all this, it leaves four spaces, four teams can get to the finals of Euro 20 through this as well. 
via other playoffs if they've not qualified right. through the normal qualification. Which route. they probably will have done. If you're looking at the four top nations to kind of, you know, get through to these playoffs, the likelihood is, the huge likelihood is, they would have already qualified. And so what they simply do then is just, they just go down the league until they encounter a, t- a country who hasn't qualified for via conventional means uh, and then just give the, the spot to them instead in the playoff. Okay. Yeah. So what you could end up having is... Um, yeah, someone from leagues the two or three, uh, or B and C, I should say, uh, in there. Um, what this is is a backdoor kind of uh, it's a second chance saloon for the likes of Holland and Italy to ensure that every top nation always qualifies. And what this also is is UEFA desperate to fill every single spare space in the footballing calendar imaginable. Um, that the, the uh, president of UEFA uh, said recently, football never stops. Well, it bloody should stop sometimes <laughs> because they're professional sportsmen and they need to have a two-week holiday and lie on a beach somewhere just every now and again, every couple of years. It's not a lot to ask. Uh, and furthermore, there's an oversaturation of football, which which basically it's the only threat I can see to, to football losing its popularity. Oversaturation. And that's what they're trumpeting and promoting. Um, I'm, I'm Unlike Hollywood, I'm dead against it. I think it's complete bull from start to finish. It's farcical and it's entirely provocated by greed. Do you not yeah. think? I've no doubt it's done by greed, uh, but I'd rather play Spain. I mean, the question is, how important is this? Essentially, it's it's a kind of a Carabao Cup level of importance. Yeah, like yeah. well, yeah. if England go out of it, no one's. Yeah, we've got the World Cup and the European Championships. They're the important international things. This is just floating below somewhere, uh, but it it will. I mean, UEFA's point is friendlies are boring, and we agree with that. And this is to, this is the replacement. Mm. Of course, there will still be friendlies because there's three teams in the group. So, in, if France, uh, Spain, and Croatia play each other next Tuesday, England are the odd one out. So we're playing uh, Switzerland, I think, in a friendly. So there'll still be friendlies, right. just not as many of them. And but the friendly, you know, these games will be against teams of a similar level. So I'm not totally against it, but I do appreciate this is not coming from some, you know, philanthropist. You know, uh, yeah. it's just it's literally because well we can we can uh, we've got a format here that can make some more money and what? get some more advertising. But Steve hit on something. I imagine I've not looked into the players' union against it because of what Steve says. It's too much football because if England are playing a tournament like this, even though it's not a World Cup. They will take players will probably take it more seriously than a friendly, and because of that, I imagine club managers like Pepper wholly against it as well, because they don't want players going away at all. But if they're going to go away, it should be for friendlies where they're not going to be taxed too much and may not play ninety minutes. And of course, and in the old format, we'd be playing, we'd have started the qualifiers instead this weekend, so it wouldn't have been friendlies anyway. Hmm. Uh, so the qual- the actual qualifiers for Euro twenty. The draw's not till December, so that's all been put back. Yeah, it's uh, basically my my theory is that people were getting increasingly sick of friendlies, and club managers and clubs who now hold you know much more power than they used to were getting increasingly sick of the pointlessness of friendlies. And UEFA thought, well, shit, what we got to do? We got to keep our international kind of gravy train going. Oh, let's create a tournament about you know around it, and then we'll do so from a position of power post World Cup when there's bound to be lots of kind of interest again in international football. And and Kerafin, the, the UEFA president, kind of pretty much said as much in in his kind of missive um, 
on their website where he said, you know, there's a huge popularity again um, in, in kind of international football. No, that's because there's just been a World Cup, mate. That's because it's once every four years, so it's a special event. I mean, watching England in a semi-final against Croatia in a World Cup, I'm Welsh. I was loving every minute of it. I was hooked. <laughs> watching England against Croatia in, in a Nations League bullshit kind of event which means but Steve, absolutely nothing. I appreciate that, but uh, I, I kind of fall somewhere in the middle here because I uh, we play too much football, uh, completely agree. And, yeah, and, actu- right. and actually, I think at a certain point, there'll have to be a conversation about how it's affecting the players, not just in terms of injuries, but just in terms of quality of performances that they're putting in and whether we're actually beginning to affect the quality of the products that we're delivering because of the number of games that they have to play. Having said that, if it's a straight choice between friendlies and UEFA Nations League, whatever, yeah, never heard of it until today and now I know about it. (laughs) On the pitch that Howard's just given me, I'm all in for that because there's nothing worse than a pointless friendly between England and some tiny nation from nowhere where you learn nothing about nobody or anything and you just, the only, you know, you don't, for me, one of the big kind of flaws in international football is you have these drawn out qualifiers where you play nobody of any quality whatsoever and you kid yourself that you're a pretty good team because you beat all these no mark countries and then you get to the real football you get to the knockouts in the world cup or the euros and the first big team you come up against you look like scared kids because you've just never played them in a in a proper competition before and i think that this is a nice kind of meeting in the middle in terms of preparing the the certainly from an England perspective preparing those players to play your Spains your Croatias who tactically technically may be a little bit more advanced than you um in a game that isn't just a nothing friendly that has a bit well of riding on it Aysan, sorry to interrupt but that is exactly what I'm halfway through writing and it's going out later today I mean well, as regards to England it's perfect for England this mm. and, and in terms of their development and where they are now under Gareth Southgate and the new direction they're totally. taking under, under, it's perfect because what it is it's, it's a tournament without consequence so you've got all the best bits and none of the bad bits it's perfect um, but looking at it as a whole oh man it's bullshit it's... <laughs> <laughs> okay look I, I, I had to laugh that Harry Maguire fa- finds it the format confusing <laughs> because for an individual team it's not confusing in the slightest you play uh, four games and if you win the group you go into a semi-finals next summer can I say it could be it could be simpler for a single team it's just when you start digging around a whole format and playoffs yeah, and people getting day. through to the Euros but if Steve's against it, I do do take a minute to listen to the official theme tune for for this competition. I still it's, haven't heard it's it. Stirring stuff. Is it'll it? Get you. It'll get you on board within three minutes. See, I, can, I can never tell when you're being sarcastic or not. No, no, it's Game of Thrones. Time. <laughs> oh, is it? Oh, yeah. Fair enough. In okay, some language I can't understand. So yeah, you'll be well on board. Excellent. <laughs> um, okay, so the England team as England are playing in the UEFA Nations League. Um, I wanted to have a brief conversation about the uh, squad that uh, that Gareth Southgate has actually chosen. Um, Howard, I'll start with you. It's very, it's almost identical to the World Cup squad. Um, does that disappoint you on any level? Uh, 
A bit, yeah. I think Southgate said he wants to. So, yeah, the general consensus is, not mine entirely, is that, you know, the World Cup finals were a success for England. Hmm. Uh, of course, getting to the semis, it's hard to argue against that, but I'd give it a damn good go, to be honest, now the dust has settled. Uh, and he wants to reward those players. So that's what this is. Uh, but the thing is, with the qualifiers that do come later and this... this uh, I call it League of Nations, but it's not that. Uh, Nations League competition. He's got about, I think it's 17 games now before a, a major finals, assuming we get to Euro 20, to work with England players. Uh, so you think with those 17 games, he's really got to be putting down a blueprint for the future of this team. Uh, now, to be honest, yes, it was a young team anyway. So it's not that surprising. I mean, Vardy's gone, hasn't he? And uh, was, it, was it Cahill as well who announced retirement? Yeah. Uh, so two of the older players Ashley have gone Young. anyway. Was it Ashley Younger? It wasn't Younger I was thinking of, but... Young hasn't announced his... No, 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 player, but he's not in the squad, is he? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah, so you take those three out, and it's a very young squad anyway, so it's not that bad a decision. If he'd been sticking with a load of 31, 32-year-olds, I'd have a problem with it. Obviously, what we'll probably discuss in the next 10 minutes is bringing through the next generation, well, so to speak. Well, actually... The, my, I'm not, yeah, but I'm not too down with the squaddies picks because it goes off form and it rewards performance from the, the finals. Which is all yeah. absolutely fair comment. So, Steve, I'm going to throw this over to you and I've got a slightly different question for you. Um, if you look at the... If you look at the evolution, the development of, of the England national team under Southgate, you, you feel like the World Cup was a success. Uh, is that fair to say? Oh, absolutely. It's a World Cup semi-final. Okay, so... It's the furthest they've gone since the 90s, yeah. so yeah. So, but having said that, there were limitations within the side and there were things that we couldn't do or we didn't do well. Um, mm. Is it not disappointing then that by picking the same squad more or less again that you're not really looking to evolve the problematic areas in the on the pitch. I mean, I guess what I'm trying to get at here is that if a centre midfield has got no creativity in it and that severely limits your performances at a tournament and then you get into the next phase, which is this phase now of building to the next tournament, would you not think that, the, that even starting with this squad it should all be about building to that, to that next tournament and ridding yourself of that weakness by trying to involve players who you think mm. can change that. Um, I largely disagree. The only exception would be James Madison. I think James Madison is at that stage now where he's ready for England. But then, hold on, I'm, I'm going to stop you right there then, mate. You don't disagree with me at all. This ah, no, about, no, no. This is not a conversation about Phil Foden at all. This is a conversation yeah. about James Madison because okay, I, okay. I feel... Well, anyway, go on. You speak what you got well, to say. Well, I mean, just to kind of tag on to what Howard said at the end there, I, you know, I agreed with everything Howard said. I think for the first uh, couple of games after the World Cup, um, whoever you drop, as we saw with Ashley Young... The press make a big deal about it and basically symbolically suggest that that's the end of his England career. Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot of symbolism there. There's a lot of importance what should be attached to that, I think. Just stay with the same squad for the first game. Then you evolve as the qualifying campaign uh, 
get underway, or in this case, for you know, the Nations League. Um, so yeah, I, I'm, yeah, we do agree on James Madison then, because and you make a very good point. There was a dearth of creativity in, in England's midfield. That was ultimately their failing, their, their kind of shortfall, and James Madison could resolve that. Um, so I was surprised not to see him in the squad. I was um, even. Not not even including what he's brought to the Premier League already so far. I think if he was still at Norwich, he should have been in the squad. It was quite clear last season that he had enough about him to make the step up, in my opinion, at least. Okay. Um, so, yeah, I was, I was surprised at that. You look at the midfielders that he's taken, um, they're much of a, of a muchness, really. Um, you've got Jesse Lingard and Deli Alley there as the two who you'd expect to kind of create something. Um, but then again... You know, they're not in the greatest of form and they haven't beat, well, Deli Ali certainly over the summer failed to perform too. Yeah, I'm just, I'm surprised he didn't make make the grade, Madsen. I think he will do, certainly. And I think going further forward, when you're looking at, you know, say a year's time from now, 18 months from now, when you start bringing in assessing yards and the Fodens, my God, it's going to get exciting then. But for now, by and large, I think he's picked a very sensible squad. Okay. Um, Howard, your thoughts on James Madison and his omission from this particular squad? Yeah, I've, I've not seen much uh, of him, but obviously I've, I've read the reports on him. I don't, yeah, I mean, we discussed off there or previously, you know, about bringing youngsters, the age of Sancho and Foden were rumoured, you know, due to a ridiculous exclusive in the mail, I think, that they were going to make the squad. Madison's obviously much more mature than that, and I can't disagree with you that in this squad, I don't. Yeah, he's he's made the under twenty one squad, hasn't he? Uh, his level of performances, I don't see why he wouldn't get in. I mean, you reward. Maybe it's just maybe we're six months too early here, and he will yeah. make it because surely he will make the squad if he keeps performing at a good level. I've got no doubt. Likes of Tar. Huh? I've got no doubt yeah. that he'll make it. So, like to talk, you know, like someone like Tarkowski has just made the squad, but you know, doesn't go straight into it. I mean, that could be a sin. You can say if he was a United player, he'd have been the first name down. Well, or a City true, player. Though, there is no, or a that, City yeah. player or yeah. Liverpool player. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, going back to before, I'm not sure it's all about personnel. It's about tactics. England were essentially a well-organized set-piece team, and if they're going to move forward, they have the Virtually no threat from open play, so that's that is the challenge now for Southgate. Do you put a? Do we find a playmaker or accept we don't have one and take like the Liverpool model where you have three, like Rashford, Ali, Kane, a vibrant front three, but workmen, workmen who are comfortable on the ball behind them. Like, and there's a good article on Statsbomb that talks about this that says that Delph is the answer. Delph, Dyer, and Henderson, which makes people groan because it's the most uninspiring midfield, perhaps for a lot of people that you could possibly imagine. I don't think there's enough but, quality in front of that. I don't think. I think the, mm. the problem with the problem with thinking like that for me is that other than Sterling, you've not really got pace. Um, I think if you want to play like that, you need to be absolutely devastating on the counter attack, and I just don't think that we are. Um, I think the, the, the I think the Madison omission for me is really really baffling because he started the season in I, I, every time I've watched him he's been Leicester's best player uh, he looks he looks absolutely he, he just looks he looks great I mean I I, mm. I kind of watched him and my first thought was yeah he's going to end up at a bigger club within within eighteen months two years max because he seems to have 
You know, he looks like a more developed Phil Foden in the sense that he, you can see he's got an eye for a pass. You can see he's got technical quality. You can see he's really brave. Like he, he, um, who do they play on the opening day? They play United on the opening day at Old Trafford. And yeah, he's brilliant. He's brilliant for an hour. He's absolutely yeah. brilliant for an hour and he terrorizes them. And you just, you, for me, that's what this England team really, really, really lacks. And I think for all the hype around a guy like Deli Alley, I've not seen him once play passes the way that Madison seems to be able to play those passes for fun. So it's just really a weird head-scratching omission for me. And then to read on top of that, the under-21s manager saying he's not ready for a call-up just put me on my seat, really. I was just a little... Yeah, well, that, that's, that, that kind of feeds into my suspicion that they're trying to keep him grounded and kind of avoid any undue hype at this stage. But what really kind of staggers me, what really baffles me more than anything, is the fact that Lallana's pulled out, Sterling's pulled out. That gives a great opportunity then to, to kind of revise their thinking, bring him into the squad and say, ah, but he's only coming in, you know, to fill the spot because, due to omissions elsewhere, just to kind of dampen that hype. Mm. So they had a great opportunity to do that and, and they've foregone that, that, uh, that opportunity. So, yeah, I'm baffled all around like you. Okay. Okay. Um, just a final one on 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 him as a player. Uh, where do you think he plays and whose position do you think he takes when he moves to the senior squad? Steve, I'll start well, with you. you. You should answer your own question then if you've watched him this season. I will do, but I'm interested in what, <laughs> what Steve thinks as well. Uh, well, I think he's going to play as a front three, uh, as the more kind of, you know, withdrawn of the three, uh, possibly on the right-hand side, but with licence to drift. Um, so have Sterling on one side and have, have uh, Madison on the other. Um, essentially playing the role that Lalana uh, or Ali, you know, kind of have been used for in the past as well. Um, so I think that's where you can play him, obviously, in the midfield three as well. Mm. Uh, and at the point of the midfield three, um, you know, it's, that looks perfectly good to me. A midfield of, say, Dyer and Loftus Cheek, say, if he continues to develop with Madison at the point of that. Um, but then, when you start talking like that, your mind immediately goes, you know, six months down the line or a year down the line or 18 months down the line. And you do start thinking of the Phil Fodens and you do start thinking of Sessignons. And in my mind, and I'm no expert, I'm just going on games I watch on telly, but just in my mind, Foden and Sessignon are miles ahead of Madison and miles ahead of Loftus Cheek and you know potentially miles ahead of Deli Ali and and you know these are the, the the two in particular and Sancho who England have a golden future with mm. but of course it's too early for that you know point we're talking two years down the line we're talking the next major championships at the very earliest mm. I think he's but a, for now a, you know Madison yeah a, as a as a part to play I think he's an eight. I think he's he he's a player who really um I don't see him as a front three player um because I think that when you've got when you see how willing he is and how desperate he is to get on he the is. ball and how comfortable he is to come deep and collect the ball under pressure and turn and play a pass, whether it's a simple and to, to understand when to play it simple and when to play a complicated pass. He's just, you know. I'm, I'm not trying to overhype him, but I just think he's exactly... 
I watched him for I I I, I don't watch uh, Championship football almost at all, so I didn't really know a lot about him. I watched 15 minutes of him against uh, United in the opening game, and I went, I'm going to try and watch as much of Leicester as I can because I really like the look of him. And each time I watch him, it reinforces what I thought the previous time, which is that now he's really, he's he's operating at a really, really high level. Um, and for me, he's he's certainly a player who develops into into a centre midfield player. And if I was the England manager, I'd have brought him in in, in this uh in this break and I'd begin to build around him because I think that he's playing in the Premier League. You know, Foden isn't getting minutes, whereas Madison is getting plenty of minutes. Yeah. yeah? He's playing in the Premier League. He looks fearless. What, what are you waiting for? I mean, there is not a single player in the England squad who can do what James Madison can do. And yet James Madison isn't in the England squad. So yeah, it just, it's uh and the England managers through the level seem to be big. I mean, it's a more it's more a problem with the youth players, but they're big on minutes gained on the pitch. So that's why Foden, I think, didn't get in the under twenty one team, but Mason Mount does. Uh, yeah, but what you say, if he's getting minutes week in week out, then it is surprising. Well, if, you know, if he wasn't playing, I'd find yeah, fair enough. Totally, but he is playing totally, and it's meant to be it's meant to be on merit and not on reputation and on age. And on merit, if you look at the midfield and how it did at the World Cup, it really lacked creativity. And to be honest, like, I'm not saying that Deli Ali should be dropped, but Deli Ali didn't hasn't done didn't do anywhere in if, anywhere near enough at the World Cup, in my opinion, yeah. for for the quality of player that he's hyped to be. And I think that James Madison is exactly the type of player who should be coming into the England squad, and the England manager should be saying to Deli Ali. He's going to take your position if you're not careful because you have to deliver and he will deliver. And I think that it's kind of, it's a bit, it's a very safe selection from Southgate. And I think that I understand why all the points that Howard made about how the team did well and, you know, they kind of, they're there on merit. They deserve to be given that opportunity. Yes. I just think that bringing Madison in, in that position and mixing it up, giving yourself that creativity, also a little, a little shot across the bowels of all the creative players, of all the attacking players that, you know, you don't just, you know, it's not just because you play for United or you play for City or you play for Spurs or you play for Liverpool that your position is guaranteed. Um, so, yeah, I think they've, uh, I think they've missed a, missed a trick. On well, I, as I said about the omissions with, um, you know, Lallana and Sterling, you're both right basically it could well be he could have Southgate could have played it safe picked the same kind of squad essentially and still brought in Madison so it's just baffling all around and and the last kind of aspect what really confounds me is it kind of goes against the grain of the man that Southgate is really Um, I know you know he's pragmatic but he's also very kind of forward thinking as well and he, he kind of you know he's he's shown that he's not scared of taking a risk uh, and you know, kind of sticking with his what he believes is right, and I don't know. It just feels like he's kind of almost bottled it, really, in this instance. It's um, it must be because they just want to keep the player grounded. That's the one thing I can totally see is that they they look at it and they know absolutely that he's going to be part of the 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 uh, the national team, the main setup, the main squad, and they just kind of want to keep keep a lid on it. And maybe after the World Cup for the first selection. To, yeah. to not create too many headlines, knowing that already 
Ashley Young for Luke Shaw has created headlines, uh, both positive because of Luke Shaw's rehabilitation and also negative because of Ashley Young's omission. Uh, right, gentlemen, final thing I want to talk about uh, on this uh, pilot episode of International League Matters is uh, the comments made by Tony Cruz about Leroy Sane. Um, now, I don't want to... I don't want to turn this into 20 minutes of, of Sane bashing or Cruz bashing, but in general, how do you feel, Steve, about senior internationals very publicly questioning the mentality of a young player? Do you think that that's something that's positive for the dressing room? Um, or do you think that ultimately it just undermines the younger player? He should shut his arrogant little face. <laughs> <laughs> That's, that's what he should do. Sitting on the do. fence, yeah. I mean, who does he think he is? I mean, seriously, who does he think he's? He's talking about a teammate there. And, and, and while I accept the fact that he's, he's far more established and experienced than Sane, who the hell does he think he is doing that to a teammate? Kind of, you know, basically burdening, get more kind of negative headlines on him and more pressure and, and all the rest of it. Uh, he should just butt out. It's got absolutely nothing to do with him whatsoever. Um, and the fact that he's also done kind of similar recently to Ozil as well, uh, he's just learned to shut your face. Well, that's where I stand on it. He's, he's doing his teammate no kind of help whatsoever there. He's just kind of um, just causing more problems. Splendid. Well, why do it? Love it when you get annoyed, Steve. Um, <laughs> Howard, do you feel different? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, exactly the same. Uh, obviously, Cruz is a top-class player, world-class. Uh, that's utterly irrelevant. They were absolutely shocking. He was shocking at the World Cup. The team was shocking. Not really in a position, the senior professionals, to be giving hand yeah. advice right now about how other players should do. Now, he could be right. We've all we've discussed Sane and we think maybe there's an attitude problem. We don't know. We're not on the training pitch. But, you know, we think that whether Cruz is right or not is irrelevant. He's shut his mouth. I mean, that t- some of the senior professionals of Germany are embarrassing themselves week in, week out and should have kept their mouth shut after the after all the rubbish that come out with Ozil, which they completely misread. The, it was nothing to do with them. They all said, oh, there's no racism in the dressing room. That is not what Ozil was talking about. Yeah, He was talking about the Federation and other matters. It had nothing to do with being his teammates racially abusing him. They completely missed the point. They embarrassed themselves with that. And they're training together now. They're both in this World Cup, uh, this uh, League of Nations, Nations League, whatever, squad at the moment. <laughs> so is it not going to be awkward that they're training there? Now, obviously, players need, different players need different approaches. Some need an arm around them, some need a kick up the arse. So it's a gamble, perhaps, that maybe by saying this, he will get, you know, he will be, uh, this will stir him into action, get him focused. But it is a gamble. And it's not really for people like Cruz to be the ones taking that gamble. It's up to his managers to decide how to deal with him. Spot on. I don't know if you've been told to say this or if he's just answering a question from someone, but they know what will... Yeah, if you say things like this, you know it's going to get out into into the media. And he's already been misquoted, what he said anyway, with some of the headlines I've seen in the English newspapers. So now I'm with Steve in a way, especially coming off the summer and the utter failure of the national team. I'm not sure, unless he knows that this will make Sane, you know, it will focus him. But does he really know him well enough to be the one to make that call? I'm not sure he, he does. No. I mean, I just... It's a weird situation. Sorry, Sam, very quickly, but it's a really weird situation as well because what, what we're seeing is a, a German footballer espousing more passion 
from a, a fellow German footballer. Uh, and for years, for decades, they've kind of looked at us and kind of said, oh, are you English with your kind of one-dimensional passion and showing when you're hurting, when you're losing and all the rest of it. Ha-ha! Boots on the other foot. No, that's what, you, that's what you lack, apparently. So, you know, I'm, I'm looking at it from that angle as well and with a little bit of glee. Yeah. I um, I, I kind of agree with you both. I think that unless, unless both Joachim Lowe and Pep Guardiola have said to Tony Cruz, listen, mate, if you get asked about Leroy, lay into him, then I don't really understand what the hell he's doing. Uh, I also think that it's telling that Lowe and Guardiola, even though they've both dropped him from squads, have been very careful to not publicly criticise Sane's attitude. And they've been asked about his attitude. Both managers have. And both managers have been at pains to say, no, 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 it's got nothing to do with his attitude. And, you know, he'll get there, all that kind of stuff. It makes you feel like, for whatever reason, neither manager is comfortable questioning the player's attitude publicly, which I think is the right way to go in general. And more specifically, those coaches are coaching that player. And maybe they know that publicly slating him is make gonna maybe make things worse which is why they're keeping their counsel in terms of what the issues may or may not be so for for Cruz to come out and 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 drop all that in the in the public domain uh, particularly as you say off the back of such an appalling world cup both from him individually and from the german national team as a whole and on the back of the ozil racism storm and the idea that there seems to be a lot of um yeah, just tension around the German national team squad. It's just a very strange moment to do that. Be interesting to see if Sane gets picked and if Cruz gets picked and if they play in the same team in these upcoming games. Um, right, gentlemen, that was a fun, fast, furious, uh, passionate, interesting uh, round <laughs> robin of the uh, of the international, the beginning of the international break and this new UEFA Nations League tournament, which I'm now really excited to, thanks to. To Howard. So, Howard, thank you very much. A pleasure as always. Steve, thank you very much. Pleasure, mate. To everybody who listened, thank you very much for listening. Maybe the international break, but as you can see, the pods will keep coming. Um, I believe next we have got part three of the Talking History Mancini years, uh, which will be out Saturday, which is I've listened to already is brilliant. Uh, a, a must listen. Um And then, yes, we'll be back early next week with our brand new Scout Report show. In the meantime, be safe, be well, and as always, up the blues.